HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Diageo Bar Academy. Learn more at diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll, Lord. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The devil runs his groove in them rhythm and blues that sound. It's gonna get you some in the end. Welcome back to the Speakeasy. I'm David Bolte. Uh, I'm Greg Benson. Hey, buddy. How you doing? I don't think hey. Sutter's coming today. No, he's he's tied up building a haunted house or corn maze or whatever <laughs> whatever the, whatever the hell that thing he's building in there is. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, well, he's, he he's hard. What it is? <laughs> I don't know, but he posted that like thing on Instagram that looked like a weird just like wall of souls that's just like coming out of the side of a Moria Margo. I'm not sure, but I, I, I think I think he's it's called it's the showmanship. He's trying to build the suspense of whatever it is that he's working on. Oh man! Well, I can't wait to see it. Um, I'm trying to get back to New York next month, so I'll be just in time for that. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah it's looking pretty incredible. It does look like a haunted house. I, you know what? It, like, if you have like miracle bars during the you know the Christmas season, it, it, why not have you know a run of Halloween bars? Right, and like everybody loves spooky season. Like, I, I guess this is the what first second official day of fall, which is kind of nice for the first time. And the virtual studio I was able to turn my fan off to record and I'm not immediately drenched in flop sweat. <laughs> like, yeah, people, people love this time of year, man. I would, I would totally go to like, you know, a like camp crystal lake or whatever themed bar. I think that would be pretty badass. I mean, you know, th- something that gets me about this time of year though, is that it seems like Christmas comes earlier and earlier. I mean, like in my neighborhood and here in the Bay area where it's still like today, it's going to be 85 degrees. People are already putting up Christmas lights on their houses. And I'm just like, man, can you just like, just give the, that's, there's two major holidays before, you know, we've got Halloween and we have Thanksgiving. Like you're jumping the gun. This is crazy. I I know like, it looks like a lot of these people's houses are kind of, kind of like Griswoldian, you know, like they they spent (laughs) a a fortune on lights. So they're wanting to get their, you know, their money's worth out of them. But, you know, let let all the holidays, you know, let them do their thing. Cause like, yeah, plus it's not. Plus, it's not like you can't put shit in your yard for Halloween, too. It's just like if you right. ha- don't tell me that you have a giant inflatable Santa Claus in your basement and you don't also have a giant inflatable spider. Like, come on, man. That's just <laughs> that's just bad planning right there. My spiders in my basement are not inflatable, but they are giant. <laughs> they do move. 
like the improvements, but so very, uh, yeah, I was wondering, uh, are you, so you're back in Brooklyn now, uh, Mm -hmm. you're not like on some random tour of baseball stadiums, uh, but you're back, you're back for a while, right? Other, other than a trip to the Bay area this weekend. Yes. (laughs) Oh, you're going to come. That's awesome. Um, but I was really wondering, I mean, like, like, it's so much fun that like we're able to do. Like, we've talked about this, you know, being in the virtual studio a lot, you know, over the past year plus. But you haven't really missed any shows, and, and you know, like as far as like technology goes, and you know, we use Zencaster most of the time for Heritage Radio. Um, but like, I was kind of wondering to get your take on what it's like to actually like be able to broadcast from all these different places. It's kind of great, honestly, you know, and also because for the past decade, I was in a field where you just, you know, you, you're, you're a bartender. You can't work from home. Like, what are you going to do? Like FaceTime in on one of those push carts that like we all had in elementary school with like the giant TVs on wheels, that like <laughs> the substitute teacher wheels right. in and just, you know, like have, I don't know like the other bartenders kind of push you around behind the bar and you're just Skyping in from your living room and your underwear. Like, no, you can't do that. So it's nice to be able to be more mobile. And also, I don't know. I was really at first when in the pandemic, I transitioned to making a living solely by slapping my hands against a keyboard. I hated it because I missed being around people. I missed going to work. I missed having, I maybe, I don't know what this says about me and my fucked up mental state, but I missed a commute. I missed like <laughs> having distance between my home and my work that I had to travel, whether I liked it or not. But, you know, I don't know, maybe I've just replaced my commute with going to Virginia and Cincinnati and the Twin Cities and Philadelphia and all these other weird places and, you know, just bring in the, the show on the road. I mean, it's great to have you in the virtual studio. You know, you're on the complete opposite side of the country from where I am. How, how have you been adjusting to all this? I love it. <laughs> I, miss I know, Ro- right? I miss Roberta's Pizza, but I, I, yes. I love being able to do this because, I mean, in a weird way, like it's kind of a, a blessing because, you know, when I moved out here to California and started doing the bicoastal thing it was i mean you came on the show because i wasn't able to make it to every episode so for me it's it it really is a blessing i was afraid that i was going to miss out on a lot more of these shows than than i actually have because of the fact that we can do this so it's really great and especially you know uh the fact that we've all been able to have great guests from all over the world you know there's a lot of like there's some cons to it but i feel like the pros outweigh them so, yeah. yeah, and speaking speaking of guests coming in from all over the world, look who's here. Hey, Souther, how you doing, buddy? <laughs> no, no, oh, well, <laughs> not yet. We're that still was a working cool on joke. it. Well, I'm just I'll just recycle that segue and say, uh, speaking of amazing guests that we can pipe in from all over the world, joining us today on the Speakeasy from sunny, sunny California, we have Mallory O'Mara, co-host of the Reading Glasses podcast and author of Girly Drinks. Thank you so much for joining us, Mallory. How are you? I can't believe I don't even get a fresh segue. <laughs> you know what? We we so very rarely nail the transition from whatever the <laughs> hell we were bullshitting about to who we have in the studio that like when you get a good one, you really don't want to let it go to waste, you know? 
but you did pronounce my name correctly. So I'll give you that. Thank <laughs> you for having I me did. on. <laughs> I was, I was thoroughly coached before the show on how to do that. <laughs> how are you? Where, so where are you, are you joining us from? Uh, I'm in Idlewild, California, uh, very close to LA. That's where I, I used to live. We moved up here during the pandemic. Not a great cocktail town, um, but it is gorgeous. And there's lots of birds and squirrels, which almost makes up for the lack of cocktails. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, if I if I can't get a good cocktail, I'm just like, well, I'll just go, I'll just go look at some squirrels in the park. Although yeah, I, I mean, usually, it's the, it's I usually the bring thing a that we all do. Last. Yeah, exactly. Um, so how... You you are uh, a, a screenwriter and a producer originally by trade. Is that right? Yes. I sort of fell into being an author and a historian through the monster world. Okay, you're not. You can't just say through the monster world and expect us to be like, ah, yes, the monster world. Like, please, please elaborate on the monster world. Uh, so, for years and years, I uh, was a producer, screenwriter for an indie pr- genre production company, and I've been working in the horror world and the film world for a lo- really long time. Um, and I ended up working on writing a book about a woman named Millicent Patrick, who is the woman who designed the creature from the Black Lagoon. And it, there's a whole, obviously, there's a whole book about it, but there's a whole story. Like, no one knew if she did it. No one knew what happened to her. Her whole story was very hidden purposefully in in, in many cases. And uh, she's my hero for a really, really long time. And I wanted the world to know about her. I wanted to find out her story. So I wrote a biography of her. And I I ended up loving writing, loving writing history, loving writing feminist history. And um, that's that's sort of how I, I, I fell into it. I ended up, uh, I don't work at the production company anymore. Now I am an author and a podcaster full time. Uh, but while I was working on what my first book was, Lady from the Black Lagoon, I moved to Los Angeles and um, my best friend, who is a huge cocktail nerd and the person who got me into cocktails, as a housewarming gift for my new tiny, tiny LA apartment, got me a cocktail set with like a shaker, stir, uh, um, bar spoon, all that stuff. And I got really, really nerdy about it. Uh, she didn't expect me to. She got me the Death & Co. book to go with it. And I had never really at that point knew that you could get super nerdy about cocktails. Um, and I hate cooking, which is the hilarious part. But I absolutely, like, I would eat a t- can of tuna for dinner and then spend 20 minutes making myself a cocktail afterwards. <laughs> and, like a divorced dad. And I just fell in love with it. And as a nerd and a historian, uh as I got into cocktails, I wanted to read about it. I very much come from like the Hermione Granger school of of thought. And I was like, great, I want to go to the library. I want to read about cocktails. And I noticed I was getting all these cocktail books, buying all these cocktail books. And I was just like, huh, buy a guy, huh, buy a guy. Oh, 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 oh these are all by guys. Weird. And there was no women's history in any of them. And I was starting to get kind of frustrated. There was one line in one book uh, that was a history of the American cocktail. And it was like, oh, during Prohibition, uh, it was the first time women were allowed in bars because all sorts of social rules were upended during Prohibition. And I was like, hold the fucking phone. I want to know about that. Like, that was it. There's just a one line. And I was talking to said same best friend. And I was like, man, there, are there no histories of women drinking? And she said, no, you are going to have to write it. And so I did. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> That's so awesome. Well, it's it's funny you mentioned that because I was just working on my other show on HRN Back Bar, and we're doing a whole episode about um, 
the Jack Rose is the cocktail we're doing, but it's about apple brandy and it's about the role of uh, women in making brandy and cider in colonial America up to the present day. And we were talking with someone who's been a guest on the show, uh, Nicola Nice, who runs the Women's Cocktail Collective. Yes, um, I interviewed uh, Dr. Nice for uh, for the book, and I talked to her a bunch. We're hopefully going to be doing some fun stuff together. She is a hero and just truly an incredible person. God, she's just the she's best. Great. But yeah. but yeah, she mentioned. You know, we were kind of talking. It's like you said. Like you know, all of these cocktail books are written by dudes Mm -hmm. and it's not like there is some sort of like tragic library fire that destroyed all (laughs) these books that were very misogynistic library fire yeah (laughs) a very selective patriarchal library fire but yeah like you know there there were so many like recipes and um methods for making cider and eau de vie and brandy that were out there it's just that they haven't been classed as cocktail books because they were lumped in as like, you know, like housekeeping books or like Mm -hmm. entertaining books. But like, I mean, Jesus Christ, you mentioned the death and company book. That's a fucking entertaining book. If ever I've seen one, like there's so much about presentation and like how to, you know, what type of ice to use. And they have that whole like numerous pages of their glassware. And I mean, you know, if you just want the recipe that's what Google is for. Like, right? <laughs> but but Greg, it's written by a guy, which means it's serious. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, see, there you go. That's the key. Yeah, that was the <laughs> it, it was the funniest part when I started writing the book um, because there were n- truly no like no women writing about this stuff, and there were no books about it. Even uh, there's one book by by Fred Menick that's like whiskey women. It's the history of of uh, women in whiskey, which is great. Um, but because of the, the the dearth of of books out there, I assumed that my job was going to be a nightmare, and I was going to have to spend years and years, and it's going to be so tough un- unearthing all this information. And it turns out there was so much that I ended up having to add a chapter to my original outline. I had to email my editor and I was just like, Peter, I have so much shit. Like I have to make this book bigger. I couldn't, every, every single day I'd be researching this book. It took me about two years to research it. I'd be like, how has no one written this book before? There is just a, a like a multitude of information in every, uh, doesn't matter if it's champagne, beer, tequila, wine, whiskey, bourbon, gin, vodka, like anything that you can imagine. There's so much women's history in it. And I just truly couldn't believe that no one had written the book before. Until so. <laughs> Until now. <laughs> Until me. <laughs> so what was that, what was that like being the, the person to, I don't know, like, were you sort of, I could see it going two ways. I could see you sort of being like, I am on you know, a, a divine mission from God herself <laughs> to write this book or just every day living in fear that like, there's so much information out there that like, you know, one day you'd walk into the strand or whatever, and someone else had written your book and it was like in the center of the room and everybody was buying it. You'd just be like, fuck, like what right. was, what was that even, process like? Even just like, bringing like the, all this the, information out. Even just like the stewardship of like taking on this role as the person who was writing this book. I mean, like there's, was there like a lot of pressure on you? 
Oh, absolutely. There were, there were a lot of emotions writing this book. One, just a lot of frustration. I would be, because you know, I did do, I just did, did so much research. I think I've read between 500 and 700 books for this book. Wow. And um, I would it's more constantly. more than I've read in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, I normally read like 200 books a year because I do a reading podcast yeah. and I love to read. So this was just like, being a professional researcher is just like, I was, I, I'm like the Terminator sent back in time but to, to read books and to write them. Um, I constantly complained to my best friend about, you know, wanting to, f- trying to find information about this or that. And she would be like, Mallory, the book that you're looking for is the one that you're writing. And I'd be like, oh, okay. And then I realized, I was like, that's why no one's written this book before. Cause it's a pain in the fucking ass. <laughs> Cause it was so much work. Uh, I read, I had to read so many things, um, especially since there's so much historical, like primary sources and historical records that you have to read through a certain lens because they're, you know, either very racist or very sexist. Um, so much of the history of um, black people drinking in early America, uh, so much of the, the the history written about it is like written by racist white people. And you have to, the certain things like you have to look at differently, discard. Um, and I was like, oh, this is why no one's done this because it's it's a lot of work. Uh, there are there in the process of researching girly drinks. Uh, an amazing book called Movers and Shakers by Hope Ewing came out, uh, and I was very terrified when I saw it. But it's all it's basically like the next chapter of girly drinks. Movers and Shakers is all about the state of the industry right now and amazing women that are distillers, bartenders, brewers, um, uh, influencers, all 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 that stuff. Um, so I was like, phew, okay, that's, I don't have to worry about that. Um, and I've talked to so many people in the industry. Um, I actually have talked to Dr. Nice and like, I really want her to write a book, but there's so many people that I talked to that I was like, oh, I wish I would have written that. And I'm like, I know it's a pain. <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> uh, but when I was working on it, I mean, I, I'm not a bartender. I'm not a drinks professional in that way. Um, so when I was writing it, there was a lot of imposter syndrome. Like, why me? You know, like I have, I don't work in a bar. I am not a distiller. I am not a brewer. I'm, I'm just a measly historian. Um, but I wanted to write it so badly because I just, I wanted to read it. Everything, every project that I've ever done, including, you know, my first book, Lady from the Black Lagoon, I wrote just because I wanted to read it because I wanted to know this information. And that sort of, it was sort of my, my North Star throughout the whole process is like what I find interesting. And when I finished it, I was like, you know what, even if this isn't great, at least it's out there in the world. At least this information will be out there in the world. So people know, you know, I really... I think my mission in life is to make sure that women know that they belong in the places that they want to be. And I tried to do that uh, with the horror and monster world with my first book. And I really wanted to do that um, with the alcohol industry and, and drinking culture with, with girly drinks. You know, I, I didn't get into cocktails until I was in my twenties. I always thought that whiskey was like a guy thing. And I was very nervous about, you know, trying whiskey and then like not being able to handle it and making like a gross face or whatever, and then being uncool. So I just felt like that world was so closed off to me. And I know that there are so many other women who feel the same. And I wanted to take that idea and like kick it across the room with this book to show that, no, women have actually been like the founders of alcohol and and alcohol culture and drinking culture. Like we belong here more than anybody else. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I would, it just made me think of a, something that happened to me. I was behind the bar. It was about 15 years ago. It was in Brooklyn, in Prospect Heights, uh, and 
it was like a day that it all changed for me. There were two women that came in and they both ordered whiskeys. One of them was a bourbon, a Maker's Mark, which, by the way, the entire package of Maker's Mark was designed. Marge Samuels, yeah. Exactly. Um, and then the other one ordered a scotch on the rocks. And I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> but uh, in, and then after that, I started noticing more and more women drinking uh, not only like cocktails, uh, classic cocktails and bars, but like just coming in straight up for whiskey. But I want to say something even before that, like you taking on this project, not as someone in the industry, there are a lot more, there are a lot more foodies than there are chefs. You know what I mean? You know, so like it, it actually <laughs> takes someone it's, I think it's a better perspective. I mean, you can be like on the front lines, you can be deep into it, like in the industry as a professional and sure, like there are certain things that you're going to kind of glaze over. I mean, for me being a bartender, like I kind of, Whenever I write articles about this, like any kind of like history or cocktail, I like there's certain things that I just kind of assume that everyone knows because like I feel like I'm talking to bartenders and you you should know how to like stir a cocktail and like you should know how to like make an ice mold and all these things. So like I think it's really great to have someone's outside perspective because you get a honestly a cleaner and bigger picture and there's certain details that I think excite someone who's looking in from the outside that we might not really recognize being professionals. Cause I mean, I guess what I'm saying is like a lot of us are kind of jaded, you know, because we just yes. do it day in and day out every <laughs> night, you know, and there's certain things that we just kind of take for granted after a while. And, and I think it's, it's great to have the outside perspective that you had. Well, I, and I even made sure to give it one more pass because see, I'm a huge cocktail nerd. Now my editor is also a huge cocktail nerd, which is one of the reasons why he was so excited to do this book with me. Uh, Cause he used to be a cocktail writer, Peter Joseph. Um, uh, but there were a few things where we're like, oh, well, people will know what we mean. And then we had his editorial assistant, Grace Towery, read the book. And there were a bunch of things where she was like, Mallory, I don't know what a jigger is. And me and Peter were like, okay, yeah, we should explain some of this stuff. Just like right. stuff that seems so automatic. And, you know, just like Peter, I specifically remember him saying like, oh, you don't need to explain what that is. And Grace was like, actually, you do. And, and I really wanted to make sure that this book was accessible to someone who's like only ever had a strawberry daiquiri at Applebee's. Hey, don't knock those. They're great. They oh, come I mean, big ass goblets. <laughs> yeah, they have enough high fructose corn syrup to power a car. It's great. Um, <laughs> but I just, you know. I already knew that people who were cocktail nerds were going to want to read this book, but I wanted other people to be able to pick it up and realize that they were welcome in this world as well. You know, that because that's how you get more people drinking great cocktails. And that's how you get more people drinking bourbon and drinking scotch is not by being like, oh, you don't know what a jigger is. It's by making it feel accessible and making it feel welcome. And, yeah. and, and expressing and I, the excitement of it. Of a, of the whole picture at the same time, you know, it's, it, you have to be excited about it. It can't be like this stuffy like thing or people are going to get turned off from it. Yeah. And I think that's the difference between a recipe book and an entertaining book as we sure. were talking about earlier. Like, you know, a recipe is just going to give you, you know, the specs to do it. And it could be 20 steps, like, you know, us like 18 touch tiki drink or whatever. <laughs> and you know, you could, that, that seems so behind a velvet rope that it seems utterly inaccessible, even to me, someone who's been doing this for like 10 years, whereas an entertaining book is going to teach you how to, you know, do it to the point where it's like, you can enjoy it and your guests can enjoy it and feel, you know, appreciative and receive hospitality as opposed to receive an, you know, intimidating wall of knowledge that they can't get around. Right. 
Yeah. Well, and I also really wanted to bring a historian's eye to it because it's one thing to just be like, here's a bunch of facts about drinking culture, but it's really important to look at that in a historical context. Um, Like it it might seem really trivial to talk about like, oh, well, you know, women weren't allowed in bars. Like, oh, well, they couldn't get a drink in public. Well, that actually was a huge, huge problem. I mean, in the 1970s, one of the lesser known fights that the second wave feminists had was to have women be allowed to A, drink in bars and B, work in bars and bartend. And when you, at first you're just like, oh, what, why is a bar important? But it's also like, that's where all important, you know, fancy schmancy corporate business meetings happen. That's where people network. That's where people socialize. You're literally cutting off women if you don't allow them to go into a bar from like a massive main artery of society. Yeah, Yeah, man. Yeah, man. What are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, everybody. Yeah, there you go. Um, No, it's, it really is interesting because like, you know, even back before that, you know, the only way you could work in a bar as a female was if you owned the bar or if it was like your dad's bar. And like, that was not necessarily like legal. It was just something that was accepted. So it's kind of crazy. Like when you think about not, not only that, but just a lot of the things that have changed culturally over centuries, it all happened because of a bar. A bar was, like you said, the main artery. And like, it's, you know, I know that uh, we want to talk a little bit about prohibition, uh, but we'll take a quick break. But I know there's a, there's a lot of things that happened during prohibition, either the cause of it and kind of the repeal on it that were female forward. So let's take a quick break and then we'll be back in the studio with Mallory O'Mara. Stay tuned. Damon, you know what's happening right now? What's that? Tales of the Cocktail, man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tales, of the Tales virtual and in real life, going for that that sweet, sweet hybrid model that everybody else is loving these days. I wonder what the attendance is going to be like. I bet it's going to be pretty well attended based on the fact that we haven't been able to go for a while, right? I would imagine so. I mean, I'm 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 miss my New Orleans fix. You know, I need my my Aaron Rose frozen coffee. If I For don't sure. get that at least once a year, I don't. You know, I'm not <laughs> sure how I've been able to function this long since 2019. Yeah, at um, least three times a day, right? It, yeah, exactly. Most and two of those after two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they're doing. Uh, you know, it's it's also cool that you mentioned attendance because there's going to be people there in New Orleans. But you know, it means like we were talking about earlier on this show, the fact that it's taking place in cyberspace means that people from you know every continent on Earth can pipe in if they want to and watch some seminars, including a really great seminar from our guest today, Mallory O'Mara, that she's co-hosting with Joyce Spence and Tracy Franklin. Uh, which you should definitely check out. It the it went live earlier, but because it's virtual, everything is archived, so you can go in and look at what they're doing. So cool, so cool that we have all the access. You know, there's also tomorrow, uh, September 23rd, is going to be the Spirited Awards, which everyone can tune into. Before this is like a black tie gala, you know, in in the theater and downtown new orleans and you know people don't really get to go to it so this is really cool you can actually tune into it and see all the awards and and all the nominations like us (laughs) Mm -hmm. who are uh you know nominated for the fourth year in a row for best broadcast podcast or online series um so we'll see fingers crossed again yep so far we're the glenn close of podcasts let's see if we can be (laughs) the leo of podcasts this year but i also want to give a shout out to the marquee sponsor 
of the Spirited Awards, which is Diageo Bar Academy. Our good friends at Diageo Bar Academy are uh, sponsoring the live broadcast of this black tie. I guess if it's, I guess if you're zooming in, it's like black tie from the waist up, you know, like put on the shirt, the tie, the jacket, and you can just be chilling out in basketball shorts or whatever. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's how I like my black tie events. Exactly. And you can watch us live at diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. And while you're there, obviously check out all the other great resources they have. They've got classes for every level of knowledge, every position you could possibly imagine behind the bar, not just how to make drinks, but you know, how to run, um, you know, how to build a brand, how to run a to-go program. If you live in a place where you're fortunate enough to still have a to-go program and just lots of really great things that you wouldn't, you know, wouldn't even think that uh, you would log on and think, oh yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. It's a, it's an amazing <laughs> resource. So check them out. Uh, yep. Once again, D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. And we'll see you, see you from the waist up at <laughs> the Spirit Awards tomorrow night. And we are back. You are listening to The Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. Today we're talking with author, historian, uh, reading aficionado and monster nerd, Mallory O'Mara. <laughs> and I realized during the break that we got so excited talking about all the things around your book, we made it all the way to the second half of the show without being like, what is your book about? So give us the, <laughs> give us the rundown. What is Girly Drinks about? So Girly Drinks is the history of women making, drinking, and serving alcohol from the beginning of time until now, um, which is quite a big span of time, uh, but there's a ton of history to cover. And what it does is each chapter has sort of a main character, and it follows that one historical woman through her time period, because I really wanted to make sure that I was examining drinks history. We talked a little bit about this before the break, but I really wanted to make sure I was examining drinks history from a bunch of different angles. So each like there's famous drinkers like Cleopatra. There are famous brewers, distillers, uh, um, uh, champagne makers, bartenders. I really wanted to make sure I was hitting all of the all the notes when it came to alcohol culture. I think of many things when I think of Cleopatra, but famous drinker isn't one that's occurred <laughs> to me until now. Yes, Cleopatra was. Uh, was an incredible drinker. She actually used to wear a ring, an amethyst ring inscribed with the, the ancient Egyptian word for intoxication on it. Her and Mark Antony. Oh, that's has, badass. Yes. It's so cool. Her <laughs> and Mark Antony actually had their own uh, private drinking club called the, Inim oh my God, this word, inimitable livers club. <laughs> I just did the audio book and man saying the word inimitable is very difficult. Um, but she she was a drinker. She wasn't like a drunk, but she loved to drink. She loved to party. And one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about her is because she's this person that every you know thousands of years after she lived, people still know who Cleopatra is. But today we think of her as this like seductress, this sexy lady wearing a lot of eyeliner. And she was actually one of the most incredible and powerful leaders of the ancient world. And the reason why we think of her as like a horny seductress now is because she liked to drink. And that's how Rome was able to create a propaganda campaign to take her down and uh, Rome uh, released all the, the, the people would do all these speeches and release um, re released a lot of propaganda saying that she was a drunken harlot. And, and, and I mean, it's something that you still see thousands of years later, you know, 
oh, people ask, oh, well, what was she wearing? Was she drunk? Was she drinking? We, st- we treat women the same way today that we did thousands and thousands of years ago. Uh, so I really wanted to kick off the book with that and, and examine how we look at women who drink and how, how much differently they're treated um, than men who drink. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you see this again in, in movies all the time. It's like when my character gets drunk, he's like a fun guy or he's blowing off steam or he's having some sort of like Hemingway-esque communion with existential sadness at the bottom of a rocks glass. But your character in the movie doesn't get that, you know? Yes, exactly. I mean, you can look at it today. You know, there's the wine mom stereotype, but there's no like beer dad stereotype. You know, you see you see dads in sitcoms and they're like having a beer after work and it's like cute and funny and like, you know, their beer guts pushing at their flannel shirt and it's like, oh, the laugh track's playing and they're like, oh, what a lovely dad. But if a mom has a glass of wine, they're like, oh, she's a wine mom. She's going to kill her kids. She's terrible. I mean, it's still, it's nuts how long this stuff has been going on and how differently we we look at women. Um, it's funny you mention Ernest Hemingway because it's something I, I talk about in the book in one of the um, the Middle Ages chapters, there is this incredible uh, Chinese poet, Li Qingzhao. And she was like the original Bukowski. Like she basically wrote about being drunk and horny all the time. And her poems were, <laughs> she's one of China's greatest poets. But one of the reasons why people don't know, a lot of people don't know who she is now and her leg- legacy was po- sort of put in jeopardy is because she was a woman. People were basically like, no, sorry, lady, only dudes could be sad and drunk and horny, not girls. Like they, like they were, there were critics of her who really looked at her as if she was this like unnatural creature because she talked about drinking and being lonely and being horny because her husband had passed away and she had like all these uh, romantic problems. But people look at people like uh, writers like Bukowski or Hemingway and it's like romanticized, you know, like, oh God, you know, these guys were so manly, you know, even Ernest Hemingway, like he, died by suicide, but it's like, oh God, he just died from being too manly. (laughs) Too too much manly sadness to contain. Yeah. His his chest was just too hairy. (laughs) It really was by the end there too. If you've seen the pictures, (laughs) but no, I, 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 I completely agree. And it's one of these things where, you know, again, it's, it's so, and like you said, you can see the ramifications of it today where, you know, even 15 years ago when this cocktail renaissance was kind of getting underway, you know, I've talked to so many people that have been on the show, uh, Natasha David springs to mind where they're like, it was so hard to get taken seriously, even in like 2005, 2006, if you're like, I'm a woman and I'm interested in making serious cocktails. Yes. And it's just, it drives me nuts. Uh, <laughs> and it's that, that exact sentiment is what I wanted to combat with girly drinks. Um, prohibition in particular is a sticking point for me because if you read basically almost any drinking history book about prohibition, the only time women are mentioned is when they're talking about the women's Christian temperance union, which was a staunch, huge supporter of temperance, very, very anti-alcohol. But when you look at the actual history, there were way, there were so many women involved in both sides, but there were so many women who were 
pro-alcohol, pro-drinking, and fought to to fight prohibition. It was a woman who actually was almost single-handedly responsible for its repeal, that it absolutely just, it completely drives me nuts that that's the only thing that people think of. It's like, oh, all of the, all of the female protesters and all those, like, women's Christian groups that were against alcohol. I'm like, yes, but there was, like, thousands and thousands of other women on the other side. Well, and the, and the other thing is, it's kind of is like, you can't win, right? Like, I mean, there's obviously a lot of crossover between the women's suffrage movement and the temperance movement, which, you know, was very much a, a marriage of political convenience in a lot of ways. Obviously, you know, people, thousands and thousands of people, half the human population isn't a monolith and doesn't all think one way. Um, but it brings me back to the whole Cleopatra thing where like, you know, the Romans were able to start as you said, a successful propaganda campaign against her because she liked drinking. But if she hadn't, there probably still would have been a very successful propaganda campaign of like, oh, look at this stuck up bitch who can't relax and have a good time. You know? <laughs> it's the it's the same thing with with the temperance movement and and prohibition. Yeah, I mean, I it was even Susan B. Anthony actually worked very hard to try to separate those two things because exactly what she was afraid of happened. And that so many people who were anti-women suffrage used that as a weapon. There were there was a, a few people who got prosecuted. It was um, the Texas Brewers Association, and there was one other Brewers Association that were um, brought to court because for election tampering and. Uh, because they were trying to get people to vote against women's suffrage uh, because they assumed, oh, well, all women hate alcohol. That's what the Women's Christian Temperance Movement says. So if we let women vote, they're going to bring down all of the breweries and distilleries in the country, which was extremely not true. But that's just how it became political fodder. Come on, Texas. Yeah. (laughs) For real. (laughs) I think it's also interesting to note that, you know, there's – you know, prohibition is a whole can of worms, um, a whole barrel of worms, as it were. Um, but, you know, prohibition didn't happen because of New York City. You know, like it, New York was the tipping point, really. But it was it was all upstate. You know, they, they really campaigned up there and won the popular vote because you had all these like kind of like rural Christians who were going for it. And honestly, New Yorkers. We're too busy drinking in the bars to go vote, and that's kind of like <laughs> looking about. But I mean, yeah, I, I mean, like I don't think that it, it, anyone. I think there are more people, especially female, that uh, are absolutely for drinking. Um, I know my girlfriend always wants me to get out of the house and <laughs> go drink with my friends. I don't know what that says, but um, but yeah, I mean, like that's it's kind of funny when you look back. It's. The, the history is always so skewed in one direction or the other. It's like, I'm glad that you wrote this book. I can't wait to get into it. Um, and like, the more we talk about it, the more daunting of a challenge it seems, uh, like you were explaining at the beginning of the show. Like, now, like, God damn, if I had to like research Cleopatra's drinking habits, like, I would give up, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of bourbon that went into the making of this book, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I mean, yeah, even going back to that, like, what what was her drink of choice? I mean, I'm sure, like, wine. Uh, it would be the equivalent of a Moscato today. She loved a sweet wine. Okay, cool. I actually have a uh, a drinking list that goes along with each chapter of the book. Um, that's awesome. And that's the first. Well, the first, the very, very, there is a chapter that I had to add at the beginning because there was so much prehistory that I didn't realize was there. Like, the very first depiction ever of somebody drinking was a woman drinking. It was just that for years and years and years, archaeologists and historians were so 
ingrained in their beliefs that women didn't drink that they just assumed it was a woman trying to play a horn backwards. <laughs> yeah. Still yeah. backwards horn move. As if someone was going to take the time to immortalize the world's shittiest horn blower on a, fo- on a, <laughs> a, so on a cave face. <laughs> That's so crazy. Like, it can't possibly be a woman drinking, so it's got to be something that just is even more bizarre. Yes, like, <laughs> clearly this woman is blowing into the wrong end of a horn. Yeah, I, and, and also, like, how much did she drink before that to play the horn the wrong way? You know, like, <laughs> but no, surely a woman would be drinking. Um, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's that kind of thing. So it's very difficult when you are writing a book like this. Again, to you have to, I had to like read a bunch of things on women's history, read a bunch of things on drinking history, and then make a sort of Venn diagram and find the middle of it and then write about that. Uh, but I, I mean, I'm not, I, I drank a lot of bottles of bourbon while I was writing this book, but I'm, I don't regret it at all. It's, it was a blast. And I'm just so, I'm so happy this information is going to be out there. I mean, we we're just talking about prohibition and everybody knows like Bill McCoy, like the real McCoy. It's, you know, it's a, a phrase that we still use, but people don't realize now that part of the reason why he was able to sell such great scotch and whiskey and bourbon is because it was all being funneled to him by Gertrude Lithgow, who is the who was the most successful international rum runner and smuggler in all of prohibition and maybe one of the most famous too and it's just I, I just want people to know this stuff I want people I want women to walk into a bar walk into a brewery walk into a distillery and know that they belong there that they have that there's so much history I mean it's amazing right now that there's this incredible movement to get more women behind everything get more people of color behind everything get more queer people in bar bartending distilling brewing all those things that's amazing but I also really want all those people to know that it's not a new thing like they're they're hit women's history women's time in the alcohol industry started 25,000 years ago they've always been welcome here they've always belonged here and they have such a rich history yeah and I mean it's so I feel like a lot of times especially on this podcast you know we'll have guests on who are women and you know it'll be like oh the first women to win gold at this you know brewing competition or the first women to take home you know first place at this particular bartending competition and I I I've said to a lot of them it's like you know I'm happy that we're at a point where we can highlight and celebrate these accomplishments. But to me, and I want to get your opinion on this, but to me, it feels like the real moment when we could kick back with a glass of bourbon and just say, we've done it is when we don't have to highlight that is when we don't have to be like, look at this thing, this woman did, we can be like, look at this thing, this person did. Isn't that awesome? You know? Yeah. Being a woman in 2021 is a really complicated thing because on one hand you're like, oh, fantastic. This is happening. But you're like, wow, it's 2021 and this is happening. You know, this is, (laughs) we're getting our first now, um, you know, uh, uh, there's the, the the epilogue of the book um, features a bartender that I know, Harmony Moon Colangelo, and she's the very first trans woman to ever write a cocktail book, A Year of Queer Cocktails, which I highly recommend. It's an incredible book. Um, and she's the fir- like first ever. And I was like, man, first ever that we're, that we're here. But it's it's also amazing that she did this and the book is fantastic and I hope everyone gets it. So it's just, it's such a weird, bittersweet, complicated feeling. Yeah. So what, I mean, let, uh, uh, let me ask you this. What would, what would the moment look like to you where you can kind of, you know, in, in your wildest dreams, assuming we live in the best timeline and not the fucked up weird one that we live in, like, what would it look like when you could kind of, you know, look back and say, okay, we've, we've 
we've done it. What does that look like to you? Um, when black women are getting this paid the same as everybody else, like, <laughs> you know, it, the moment that we don't have to do these reports, uh, you know, so many reports come out every year. Like, uh, there's the Vita report that comes out in publishing about, uh, with, that's a breakdown of how many women, how many women of color are being published everywhere. Like when we don't need those kinds of things, when I don't have, when, when me and especially more marginalized women don't have to worry about how much they're getting paid, their job security, when they don't have to worry about anyone touching them or touching their hair or saying weird things to them, uh, when they can just do their jobs and get paid for it, that's when things are going to be great. Amen to that. Yeah. Um, We've talked a lot about drinks. What was your first like drinking experience where you're kind of getting back into uh, the beginning of this journey? Like what was like the first bar or cocktail that, that you had that kind of like was the light bulb moment? Uh, I remember it perfectly. So I was 24 at the time and I had just met my best friend um, and I was living in Brooklyn at the time and she's, she still lives in Brooklyn. And up until that point, uh, we talked about this a little bit at the top of the show, but like I, you know, I don't come from a family that was huge into cocktails. I like was very intimidated by cocktail culture, was very intimidated by whiskey. Um, so I, uh, in my, when I was a, a teenager, I would drink Smirnoff ice which woof. If you've ever yeah. played Edward 40 hands with two forties of Smirnoff ice. <laughs> <sighs> I can neither confirm nor deny. Oh, woof. Um, uh, and then after that, when I got into my early twenties and would go on like crappy dates, I, it was like always a vodka soda. I just never, I was so intimidated by I'm, I'm a huge nerd and I come from a world like when I grew up as a metalhead. So I, I, I'm so used to as a woman being constantly quizzed on things. So just like I was afraid of wearing a t-shirt for a band and having someone be like, name all their albums. I was really afraid of like ordering a drink and having someone like make fun of me for not knowing what it was or make fun of like me for, for just not being able to, to, to handle it or know anything about it. So I just like vodka sodas with lime was my thing. Um, but my best friend is a huge cocktail nerd. So we met when we first became friends, one of the first times we ever hung out was at a bar that we talked about before we started recording is Tooker Alley in Brooklyn. And, uh, I sat down and I looked at the menu, which was far more extensive than I had ever seen before. And I picked something sort of at random. All I remember is that it was a stirred drink with I believe it was Jamaican rum in it and I had it and I was just completely completely blown away all it was just like a complete light bulb moment I was first off I was like wow this is good second I was like I can drink this it's not like you know my my hair is going to turn white um and third I was like I want to know everything you know I want to know I, I was watching the bartenders prepare drinks and I was so enamored with the skill and, and, and all everything that went into it it just the, uh, I'm just a nerd at heart and I realized that you could get super nerdy about drinks and I fell in love that's great wow <laughs> That also sounds like a really, really tasty trick. Yeah. Oh my god! The funny thing, I should look at Tucker's menu to see if it's still on there. I rem- it was, it was smoky. It was something named after like a ship or something because it was like kind of salty, kind of smoky, and oh, just like I, that's what actually what I should do to celebrate this. Is next time when we all get to travel again, I should go to New York and get the same drink and be like, "Wow, you changed my life." That in my the the book is dedicated like when you look in the dedication and see to Lauren, that's my best friend. Thanks. Oh, that's great, man. Yeah, we'll get we'll get drinks there, and then we'll go to Souther's Friday the Thirteenth cosplay <laughs> event. Yes, the Hell please. Building. 
Yes, all the Halloween bars, please. Uh, so Mallory, if, if folks wanted to get in touch with you and learn more about, uh, where they can pick up a copy of girly drinks and the other projects that you're involved in, where, where can they find you? Uh, just go to malloryomero.com. I'm on Twitter way too much. Um, <laughs> as of right now, you can get signed and personalized copies of books, um, from my favorite indie store, Skylight Books, uh, because of p- the pandemic, we're probably not going to be doing any, um, in-person events. I had hoped to do one with Dr. Nice in New York, but this just, you know, I don't want anyone to die. So we're not going to do any in-person events this year anyway. So the only chance you're going to have to get a signed book is through that link. Um, Otherwise, when the book comes out on October 19th, you can get it anywhere bookshop, Barnes and Noble, your local indie, wherever you want. Um, if you like audiobooks, uh, I am the one who narrates it. And if you like pictures, both the ebook and the print copies have, um, a bunch of really cool historical photos in them. Great. That's amazing. Oh man. I, this has been really fun. I like, this is probably one of my favorite episodes that we've ever done. And we've done like, <laughs> oh gosh, thank you. <laughs> um, this is really cool. Um, I, it, you know, we're on the same coast too. So maybe we can actually like get together and have a drink and, uh, yes, please. and talk about this even further. Um, but if you would be down for it, we would love to have you back on the show sometime. Uh, it's been a lot of fun hanging out with you and getting to know you and, and chatting. About Literally any, anytime there's five million cool nerdy things that we didn't get into, yeah. uh, because we just don't have time. Um, but I'm absolutely happy to come back whenever you want. Awesome. Perfect. Well, we would love to have you back. It's been really great having you on the show today, Mallory. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, it's been uh, fun making fun of Southern's <laughs> Halloween pop-up. We're not making fun of it. Uh, we're, we're really excited about it. We're just sad that it's not open yet. Uh, so we I can know. enjoy it. Stay, stay tuned next week for a rebuttal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm Team Halloween, so you can tell him that he gets one vote from me. Totally. <laughs> and again, uh, check out uh, the Tales of the Cocktail Spirited Awards tomorrow night. Um, it's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting one because again, like we said on the commercial break, um, you can actually be a part of it. Um, it's typically kind of a ticketed black tie event, but it's open to anyone who can tune into it. So check it out. Uh, wish us luck for our fourth year in a row being nominated for best broadcast podcast or web series, and check out Heritage Radio Network for many more programs like this one. Click on the beating heart to donate to the station. Help us keep this thing going. And Valerie, Greg, till next week, till next time we meet. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers, yo. So you don't shun the devil with your The Speakeasy is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows that you like. Tell your friends. And please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 